Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. series on a closer look at 12 ordinary men. Now something that I want to just go over because I'm sure you all are picking it up because you're very astute that's why you're here but one of the things that's occurring as we're doing this study you know the, the more we get into it we're getting to see a glimpse of Jesus just as much, if not more so, than these 12 ordinary men. And the part that's so exciting to me about that is it allows us to see, like as I've said through this whole thing, I want us to look at this study and put it in juxtaposition to our own lives so that we can relate to it. So to me, it's really just enhancing the relationship that is available to us with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to me, that is just so exciting. So I try to kind of, not tamp it down, but just keep from just wanting to just shout. I'm so excited because to just know that we have an even greater relationship available to us than these 12 ordinary men did. And sometimes we get so caught, and I love what Minister Scott said on Sunday, so you're gonna hear me say this too, about inner space and outer space. We are so caught up in outer space that we forget what we have in inner space. Oh, I love that. So anyway, so we're gonna go, we're gonna really pick up where we left off last week because I have so much to share and I really don't wanna do a whole lot of review. But the last, one of the last things that we talked about were the lessons that Peter had to learn to actually kind of help his character along. Um, because of course, Jesus wanted him to be a certain type of leader. So he taught him certain things. Um, and I gave you the list of those six things. So I'm gonna just share them once again, really quickly. Um, the things that he learned from Jesus, he learned submission, restraint, humility, love, compassion, and courage. And the key was he learned all of these things from the Lord's example. And because of the Holy Spirit's work in his heart, he did become a great leader. Um, and we talked about how he had preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were actually saved just from that particular uh, lesson that he preached. And I'm not gonna go over it now, but jot this down in case you didn't before because we have read it earlier. If you look in Acts, the second chapter, and read verses 14 through 41, it actually gives you what he taught on that particular day. So, and it's really, really very, very moving. Now he and John actually healed a lame man. And if we look at the book of Acts, because we did that, well actually I think we did that last week, so I'm not gonna go over it again. If you look in Acts, the third chapter, verses one and 10, it talks about that. It also talks about the fact that he was so powerful that people were healed in his shadow, which is something that I, I just absolutely love the idea of. That's something that I really look forward to the day that that happens with me. I mean, because even if I'm passing people wherever, in the mall or anything, I just pray for them. And that's, that's just something that is so powerful. You know, it's not really, a, it's something 
I thought of someone, so I'm just gonna share it. This is totally not in the lesson, but it kind of has to do with this. Yesterday I went to the nail salon and there was a lady there who had gotten a pedicure and she hadn't told the people that you know, she was standing against, standing against diabetes. And from my understanding, they have to be very careful. They can't just be cut and things like that. So I guess the person who did the pedicure had maybe clipped a cuticle or did something, and she just started bleeding, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And I was sitting there getting my nails done. You know, you don't want to stare at people. But I was like, the person who does my nails also happens to be the owner of the salon. And she, I could see that she knew kind of what to do, but you could see she was getting really, really concerned because she couldn't get this bleeding to stop. And I sat there and I'm like, okay, there's not a lot I can do, but I certainly can pray. So I just sat there in my seat and I just prayed. So of course there's no surprise that the bleeding stopped. But it just, for me, it was like, wow. I would have just loved it that me just being there, I wouldn't have even had to say anything and just in my shadow, <laughs> you know? So that's something that I long for. But that's something that we can do. Now, okay, it, it might not have had anything to do with my prayer, but it might have had everything to do with my prayer. So the key is we have the opportunity to do that all the time. So anyway, I just, that is just another thing that we can do just like these wonderful 12 ordinary men did. Now this is exactly where we left off last week because I talked about how he raised Dorcas from the dead and I had you turn to Acts the ninth chapter. So I'm gonna have you do that now. Turn to Acts the ninth chapter and we're gonna look at verses 36 through 42 and I'm gonna share it with you out of the Amplified. This is exactly where we left off. And starting with verse 36, it says, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated into Greek means Dorcas. See, I like stuff like that, because sometimes you might not have ever really known that. You just think of Dorcas and never know that it's really, the disciple was Tabitha, it's just that translated into the Greek, it was Dorcas. She was rich in acts of kindness and charity, which she continually did. During that time, it happened that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upstairs room. Now, since Lyd Lyda, oh, that's interesting. Lyda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, come to us without delay. So Peter got up at once and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upstairs room and all the widow stood beside him weeping and showing him all the tunics and robes that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out of the room and knelt down and prayed. Now I'm gonna put a pin in this. We see this happen in scripture all the time. Okay, we see where Jesus did it when he raised Jairus' daughter. Meaning the point is, we need to learn that lesson in our own lives, okay? We don't have to be at a point where we're dead, okay? Or, you know, where we're trying to raise somebody from the dead. But you may be in the midst of a storm where you are exercising every ounce of your faith to try to get you to the next step so that you get out of the storm. You may have people all around you that are closest to you who aren't at the same level of faith as you are. So therefore, you know what you do? First of all, don't tell everybody, 
okay with your walking through unless you know that they are of like faith and can be in agreement with you. You have to be very careful. But sometimes you have to put people aside so that you can march on to victory because you don't need people speaking negative things into your situation that you are already believing God for. Okay, so anyway, I just think that that's wonderful. So this is exactly what Peter did. And we know that he must have learned that from whom? The master for sure. So anyway, he told all of them to get out. <laughs> um, and then what did he do after that? Then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and helped her up. And then he called in the saints. Now I think this is interesting. God's people and the widows, and he presented her to them alive. What does this tell us? I'm pausing here again. It lets us know that the people he put out were God's people. So it wasn't like he was putting out heathen per se. He was putting out God's people and the widows and all those people who are crying all over the place. Those are the same ones that he put out and now he called back in after, of course, you know, she was raised from the dead. This became known all over Joppa and many came to believe in the Lord, that is to adhere to and trust in and rely on Jesus Christ as their savior and Lord. The point being is that that little bit right there, we could learn a whole lot from. He also introduced the gospel to Gentiles. And if you look in Acts 10, I'm not going to read that because you need to really read the whole chapter of Acts, the 10th chapter. Read that whole chapter when you get the chance. Um, you'll see where he actually did introduce the gospel to Gentiles. He also wrote two epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter in which he featured the very same lessons he had learned from the Lord and about true character. He displays it all in those two epistles, Epistle 1 and 2 of Peter. So that's always good to look at. So what a man Peter was. Was he perfect? <laughs> we already know absolutely not. In Galatians 2, the apostle Paul relates an incident in which Peter compromised. He acted like a hypocrite. We see a brief flash of old Simon. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was fellowshipping with them as true brethren in Christ, because we all know we like to fellowship and eat and you know, all that, okay? So he was doing that until some false teachers showed up. These heretics insisted that unless the Gentiles were circumcised and following Old Testament ceremonial law, they could not be saved and should not be treated as brethren. Hmm. Peter, apparently intimidated by the false teacher, stopped eating with the Gentile brethren. And if you look at Galatians, the second chapter and the 12th verse, so you can turn there if you want, Galatians 2, 12. I'm going to share it out of the Amplified. It says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat his meals with the Gentiles. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. Now, when he did that, everyone else did it too. Why? Because Peter was their leader. So if you just go to the very next verse of Galatians 2, now it's verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that Jewish and Gentile Christians were united under the new covenant into one faith, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
So the Apostle Paul writes what he did. If we look at Galatians, just back up actually, you're still in the second chapter, back up to the 11th verse. Now, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face about his conduct there because he stood condemned by his actions. Okay, so Paul rebuked Peter in the presence of everyone. So here we go, where Peter once again is getting rebuked because he's not acting like he's supposed to act. If you look at verse 14, same chapter, just drop down to verse 14, it says, but when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, Peter, in front of everyone, if you, being a Jew, live as you have been living, like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you are now virtually forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews if they want to eat with you? So in other words, he called him out on the carpet. Now to Peter's credit, because you know, got to give him a break. <laughs> he responded to Paul's correction. Now that's key because we can look again in our own lives, okay? Somebody comes into church and the ushers ask them not to seat in an area that's roped off. They even put ropes there because you're not supposed to be able to talk to ropes, okay? People don't want to hear that. They don't want to listen to what they have to say. They don't give a care as to why the section is roped off. The ushers didn't just sit up and have nothing else to do with their time but figure out some place to put ropes. There had to be a reason behind it. But some people don't care. They just want to do whatever it is that they want to do. And that is not good. That's why we have to give Peter credit here because Peter took the correction from Paul, which means he really did learn something about submission. This is proof in the pudding that he did. And when the era of the Judaizers were finally confronted at a full council of church leaders and apostles in Jerusalem, it was Peter who spoke up first in defense of the gospel of divine grace. He introduced the argument that won the day. If you turn to Acts, Turn to Acts, the 15th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 14. Acts 15, verses 7 through 14, and I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified. And it says, after a long debate, Peter got up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows and understands the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith in Jesus. Now then, why are you testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to endure? But we believe that we are saved through the precious, undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus, which makes us free of the guilt of sin and grants us eternal life in just the same way as they are. All the people remained silent, and they listened attentively to Barnabas and Paul as they described all the signs and wonders attesting miracles that God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
When they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon Peter, has described how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name to honor him and be identified with him. Hmm. So, he was in fact, in effect, really defending the Apostle Paul's ministry. So that shows us that he learned something else, okay? Because he learned submission, but he also learned to be able to do what was right opposed to what might have just been comfortable for his ego, which some people, again, find it hard to do. They may find that they should have done something different, but instead of owning that, they always come up with some kind of excuse or blame it on somebody else instead of going ahead and correcting the thing and saying what is right. But Peter did, in fact, actually do that, which is good. The whole episode shows how Simon Peter remained teachable, humble, and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction and correction. Now, how did Peter's life actually end? We know that Jesus told Peter he would die as a martyr. And we know that because if you look in John's Gospel, the 21st chapter, verses 18 through 19, it actually tells you that. Why don't I have it here? Okay. <laughs> so I have to rely on my trusty little... Okay. John 21. Okay, here we go. Okay. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, when you were younger, oh, we talked about this earlier, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and walked wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and arms, and someone else will dress you and carry you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Here's the qualifier, though. Not just follow me. Walk the same path of life that I have walked. That right there says it all. That makes all the difference in the world, okay? To walk the same path of life that I have walked. Now I shared that with you out of the Amplified Translation. So if you're looking at it in any other translation, jot down the Amplified, because it really makes a big difference. But scripture doesn't record the death of Peter. All the records of early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. Because again, what? He had to walk the same walk that Jesus did. It is recorded, though, that when it was Peter's turn to die, that he requested that he be nailed to the cross upside down because he was not worthy to die as his Lord had died. So it is recorded that that is how he was crucified, upside down. Peter's life could be summed up in the final words of his second epistle. Turn with me to 2 Peter, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. The Amplified Classic Edition says, but grow in grace, here's the qualifier, undeserved favor, spiritual strength, and recognition and knowledge and 
understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. To him be glory, honor, majesty, and splendor, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So be it. The message puts it this way. But you, friends, are well warned. Be on guard lest you lose your footing and get swept off your feet by these lawless and loose-talking teachers. Grow in grace and understanding of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory to the Master, now and forever. Yes. That is exactly what Simon Peter did, and that is why he became Rock, the great leader of the early church. Now, aren't you happy we're finally finished with Peter? <laughs> okay. So Peter's brother, Andrew, is the least known of the four disciples in the lead group. Although he was a member of that dominant foursome, Andrew ordinarily is left very much in the background. He is not included in several of the important events where we see Peter, James, and John together with Christ. As a matter of fact, turn real quick to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, the 17th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 1. Now, this is an important time because this is the transfiguration, okay? Matthew 17, verse 1. I'm going to share all of these next few verses out of the Amplified just so that you know. So this verse says, six days after Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now turn over to Mark's gospel, the fifth chapter, and we're going to look at verse 37. Mark 5, verse 37, and it says, and he, meaning Jesus, allowed no one to go with him as witnesses except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, you're already in Mark, so just turn over to Mark 14, and we're going to look at verse 33. So Mark 14, verse 33, and it says, he, meaning Jesus again, took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And here's the qualifier, extremely anguished at the prospect of what was to come. And there are other translations who actually use the word depressed. And that got to me when I read that, because we oftentimes look at people who are walking through different things in their life where that's exactly how they feel. They feel the same way that they record Jesus feeling, extremely anguished at the prospect. Now, he knew what was about to come, but, you know, we're just human beings, and sometimes we don't always, we don't have the volume of the Holy Spirit turned up so loud that we know exactly what is to come, and we wrestle with the thing sometimes. The thing that I would like for all of us to become more sensitive to is that when you see if, if that's something that you might be in the midst of or you find someone in the brethren that is in the midst of, don't judge them. Pray for them. Understand that it is an attack, that it is something that they need to have their arms lifted so that they can get on the other side of it 
Too often, we don't do that. Instead, we sit up and talk about them, and we can't figure out why. You know, we'll go around with, well, you know, you're too blessed to be stressed. There's no reason for you to feel this way. You shouldn't feel down. You should. Really? Okay, really. I mean, come on. We, oh, Jesus wasn't that way. He was really kind, and that's what I want us to see. He is the example of who we truly, truly want to be like. Okay, so anyway, that was just another sidebar. That wasn't even in my notes at all. But okay, so there's no question that he had a particularly close relationship with Christ because he was often the means by which other people were personally introduced to the master. This is Andrew we're talking about. Andrew was the first of all the disciples to be called. Now, a lot of people wouldn't even know that. If you turn to John's Gospel, oh, but you know what? Before I even show you that, because this I need to show you, because I want you to see. You saw all the places where he was not included, okay? But I want you to see where he really was part of the inner circle. I want to prove that to you. I don't want you to just take that because I said it. So go back to Mark's Gospel. Look at chapter 1. So this is Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And again, these two verses that I'm reading are coming out of the Amplified. And it says, And immediately they left the synagogue and went into the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, accompanied by James and John. Okay, so Andrew was there in the mix. Then you're in Mark. Just go over now to the 13th chapter and look at the third verse. So this is Mark 13, 3. And it says, and he, meaning Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So the point is, Andrew was really around. He was still part of that inner circle. Okay, so there is no question about that. I mean, we've just seen it. It's, it's definitely a fact. Now I want to show you how he was the first of all the disciples to be called. So that's why I need you to go to John's Gospel, the first chapter. And we're going to be there for a little bit. Not a long time, but a little bit. John's Gospel, the first chapter. And we're going to look at verses 35 through 40. And let me know when you're there. Okay, good. All right. So starting with verse 35, it says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus. Now, when they're saying John here, they're talking about John the Baptist. So I don't want anybody to, because it's kind of, you have a lot of people with the same name, so unless you really know. So in this particular instance, okay, where it says the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, they're speaking of John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. Okay. So... John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked along and said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and asked them, What do you want? They answered him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they went with him, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard what John said, and as a result followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
Now, just for the timing, if anybody really cares, in Roman time, the 10th hour would be 10 o'clock a.m. The Jews, however, reckoned daytime from sunrise about 6 a.m. So in their system, the 10th hour would be 4 o'clock p.m. So here, either time is really possible. We really are not 100% sure. Though, the Roman reckoning may be more likely because if it were 4 o'clock, the disciples might have felt compelled to go home before evening had set in. So that's just another little interesting tidbit, but I still thought it was very good to know. So as we shall shortly see, Andrew was responsible for introducing his more dominant brother, Peter, to Christ. You're already in the first chapter of John. Just drop down to verse 41, very next verse. And we're going to read verses 41 and 42. Still, I'm sharing out of the Amplified. And it says, he first looked for and found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Okay. So his eagerness to follow Christ combined with his zeal for introducing others to him fairly typifies Andrew's character. Peter and Andrew were originally from the village of Bethsaida. And you can find that, just drop down to verse 44. You're in John, the first chapter. Verse 44 says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So that verifies that, okay? Archaeologists have not yet quite determined the exact location, however, of Bethsaida. But from its description in the New Testament, it is clear that it lay in the northern Galilee region. At some point, the brothers relocated to the larger city of Capernaum, close by their hometown. In fact, Peter and Andrew shared a house in Capernaum. And that's verified actually in Mark's gospel. And you could just jot this down because I had shared this with you once before. Mark's gospel, the first chapter, the 29th verse, says in the Amplified Version, and immediately they left the synagogue and went into the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, accompanied by James and John. Um, now, they shared a house in Capernaum, and they also operated a fishing business together from there, okay? Capernaum afforded an especially advantageous location, situated as it was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, because quite naturally, fishing was good there, so it was a really good place for them. And it was located at the junction of key trade routes, because again, you want to be able to sell what it is that you're catching, because it's not like you're just catching the fish you know, for, for sport at this point. So Peter and Andrew had probably been lifelong companions with the other set of fishermen who were whom? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They also, okay, were from Capernaum. The four of them apparently shared common spiritual interests. This is interesting. Even before they met Christ, they evidently took a sabbatical from the fishing business, visited the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching, and became disciples of John, meaning John the Baptist. That was where they were when they first met Christ, actually, as we just read a few minutes ago. And when they returned to fishing before Jesus called them to be full-time disciples, they remained together as partners. So it's quite natural that this little group 
form a cohesive unit within the 12. So this even further explains why they would be a little unit inside these 12 ordinary men. In many ways, these four actually seemed inseparable. Now, all four of them obviously wanted to be leaders. As a group, they exercised a sort of collective leadership over the other disciples. We have already seen that Peter was without question the dominant one of the group and the usual spokesman for all 12, sometimes whether they liked it or not. <laughs> but it is clear that the four disciples in the inner circle all aspired to be leaders. That is why they sometimes had those shameful arguments over who was the greatest. Remember last week we talked about that? So embarrassing. Their eagerness to lead, which caused so many clashes, that's what it was. They just wanted to lead. Everybody wants to be a leader. But it's so interesting. I've always liked that expression, heavy is the head that, the heavy is the head that wears the crown. Everybody wants to be a leader, but they don't have any clue what goes along with that leadership responsibility. They just want the title, you know? Hmm, okay, well, nothing's really changed, okay? So, we know that this is something that they did all the time. They ultimately became immensely valuable when these men went their separate ways as, apostle, as apostles in the early church because they wanted to be leaders. They had leadership qualities. It's just that they needed to be guided and instructed so that they could use what was in them to God's glory instead of them just trying to seek it for themselves. But, that's the advantage that these 12 ordinary men had in the sense that Jesus was there constantly teaching them, constantly guiding them, constantly nurturing them. Whereas for us, because we don't see him standing right in front of us, we have to be disciplined enough to do our studying, to do our research, and to make sure that we're constantly renewing our mind and we're trusting in believing in what it is that he's left for us. He's left this wonderful book for us to learn from. But if we don't ever really take the time to figure out what he's telling us and figure out what he's saying, we kind of miss out. But then that's why you guys are here, because you're not going to be one of those, <laughs> okay? Which is a good thing. That's a great thing. So Jesus was training them for leadership. And in the end, they all filled important roles in the early church. That's why scripture likens them to be what? The very foundation of the church. But of course, it also lets us know that Jesus himself was in fact the chief cornerstone. And you can just jot it down. I don't really necessarily have to read it because we've read it many times before. If you go to Ephesians, the second chapter and the 20th verse, it actually says just that, that Jesus is in fact the cornerstone. So of the four in the inner circle, however, Andrew was the least conspicuous. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. You can practically count on your fingers the number of times he is mentioned specifically in the Gospels. Now, an interesting fact, apart from the places where all 12 disciples are listed, you know, there's so many places where he lists all of them, Andrew's name appears in the New Testament only nine times. And most of those references simply mention him in passing. Andrew lived his life in the shadow of his better known brother. Many of the verses that name him add that he was Peter's brother, as if that were the fact that made him significant. Now, there are many of us who can probably relate to that too. 
where <laughs> I remember I had a, a position in a Fortune 500 company. And my immediate boss <laughs> was a really interesting man. And he would come in and he might have a stack of emails that had to go out and all of these different tasks to do. And he just looked at me to do them all. But the thing that really would get to me is he would took credit, he would take credit for every single thing that was done. Nobody even knew the little worker bee was getting anything done. It was like I was not even a dot <laughs> on the wall. And it's like, oh my goodness. So that kind of stuff goes on all the time, which is why if you find yourself in a situation like that where you know you're doing the work and you know people are getting the credit, you have to adjust your thinking and realize that all that you do, you should be doing heartily as unto the Lord, not unto man. That way you can still do it. And they can, you know, they can shine and they can get all the accolades and everything. And you can stay in the background. You could be like Andrew, doesn't matter, okay? Because God knows what it is that you're doing. God knows what it is that's going on. So I kind of like that about Andrew, that he's not trying to always covet that attention. So in such situations, where one brother overshadows another to such a degree, it is really common, and this does happen in families. And you know, it, it's sad because some families, there is a strong rivalry, okay? Everybody's not just all sweet and loving like we are, okay? And sometimes there's resentment, and it even can get to a point of estrangement. There are people who don't even speak to members in their family, and that, that's really sad. But in Andrew's case, there's no evidence that he begrudged Peter's dominance. Didn't bother him. Again, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ in the first place. I mean, when you think about it, some people wouldn't have even done that. They would have just kept Jesus as the best kept secret. They wouldn't even bother to let their brother, sister, anybody else know that he was there. <sighs> he did this also immediately without hesitation. He didn't even think about it. Of course, Andrew would have been fully aware of Peter's tendency to domineer. He must have known full well that as soon as Peter entered the company of disciples, he would take charge and Andrew would just be pushed to a secondary status. Yet, Andrew brought his older brother anyway. The fact, this fact alone really says much about Andrew's character. It really, really does. Almost everything scripture tells us about Andrew shows that he had the right heart for effective ministry in the background. He did not seek to be the center of attention. He did not seem to resent those who labored in the limelight. He was evidently pleased to do what he could with the gifts and calling God had bestowed on him and he allowed the others to do likewise. All of the disciples in, of all the disciples and the inner circle, Andrew appears the least contentious and the most thoughtful. As you already know, Peter tend to be, tended to be impetuous, to rush ahead foolishly, and to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. He was often brash, clumsy, hasty, and impulsive. You could use all of those adjectives to describe Peter, okay? James and John, think about them. They were nicknamed, and we're going to talk about them a little later, not today, but later, the Sons of Thunder. That's literally what their nickname was because of their reckless tendencies. They were also evidently the ones who provoked many of the arguments about who was the greatest. 
But there's never a hint of that with Andrew. Whenever he speaks, which is rare in scripture, he always says the right thing, not the wrong thing. Whenever he acts apart from the disciples, he does what is right. Scripture never attaches any dishonor to Andrew's actions when it mentions him by name. That to me, I think, is really something. There were certainly times when following Peter's lead or acting in concert with all the disciples that Andrew made some of the same mistakes they made. Okay, because Andrew, of course, was human. But whenever his name is expressly mentioned, whenever he rises above the others and acts and speaks as an individual, scripture commends him for what he does. He was an effective leader even though he never took the spotlight. Andrew and Peter, though brothers, had totally different leadership styles. But just as Peter was perfectly suited for his calling, Andrew was perfectly suited for his. Just as you and I are perfectly suited for ours. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I can't believe that, Andrew, and this is key, Andrew may be a better model for most church leaders than Peter because most who enter the ministry will labor in relative obscurity like Andrew as opposed to being renowned and prominent like Peter. Andrew's name means manly and it seems a fitting description. Of course, the kind of net fishing that he and the others did required no small degree of strength and machismo. I mean, they were some strong people, okay? But Andrew also had other characteristics of manliness. He was bold, decisive, and deliberate. Nothing about him is feeble or wimpish. He was driven by a hearty passion for the truth, and he was willing to subject himself to the most extreme kinds of hardship and austerity and pursuit of that objective. Remember that when Jesus met him for the first time, Andrew was already a devout man who had joined the ranks of John the Baptist's disciples. The Baptist was well known for his rugged appearance and his Spartan lifestyle, so he, <laughs> he was interesting. If you look at Matthew's Gospel, the third chapter and the fourth verse, Matthew 3, Verse 4, if we look at it in the New International Version, says that John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Hmm. Now, if we look at it in the expanded Bible, because that breaks it down even further, it says John's clothes were made from camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, reminiscent of the prophet Elisha. And you can verify that by going to 2 Kings, looking at chapter 1, verse 8. That's 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. It signifies that he lived off the land. So he definitely had, you know, a rugged approach. He lived and ministered in the wilderness, cut off from all the comforts and conveniences of city life. To follow John the Baptist as a disciple, one could hardly be soft. Now, you know, I'm going to pause here. To me, I often wonder sometimes if our 
you know, our friends who are Catholic or for those people who believe they have to take vows of poverty, if maybe they're getting part of that from, you know, here, maybe they think they're doing really something if they just don't have any comforts and they're, you know, just kind of like in the wilderness and they're doing, I don't know. That's one of those things, I'll research that another time. But that's very interesting. So John's Gospel describes Andrew's first meeting with Jesus. It took place in the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching repentance and baptizing converts. The Apostle John records the incident as an eyewitness because he and Peter were there together as disciples of John the Baptist, just like we read earlier. The Apostle John, however, this is interesting, doesn't identify himself by name. He keeps himself anonymous in this gospel right up to the very end. But the way he relates the details of this encounter right down to giving us the time of day, it suggests obviously that he had firsthand knowledge of the incident. He was obviously the other disciple mentioned in the account. So Andrew's personal encounter with Jesus took place a few months after Jesus's baptism. And we all know about Jesus's baptism. If you go to John's gospel, the first chapter, and, okay, I'm not even going to read it. Just write it down. That's where we'll pick up next week because it's going to be John's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 30, 29 rather through 34. And we're going to spend a little time in that particular chapter um, because Andrew and John were standing next to the Baptist when Jesus walked by John the Baptist. They immediately left John's side. We already talked about that. And here's the thing, I don't imagine that they were being fickle or untrue to their mentor, John the Baptist. I don't believe that. Quite the opposite. John the Baptist had already expressly denied that he was the Messiah. He knew who he was. When people pressed John for an explanation of who he was, he actually told them. And that can be found in John's Gospel, uh, the first chapter and the 23rd verse. And he says, and I'll go over this next week, but I'll just say it to you really quickly. He said, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then in the message he said, I'm thunder in the desert, make the road straight for God. I'm doing what the prophet Isaiah preached. In other words, his whole ministry really was to prepare everyone for the preparation of the Messiah. That was his calling. That is what he was supposed to do. So as you can see so far, was Andrew anything like Peter? He was totally different, right? Hmm. I thought so. <laughs> and I think it's very, very interesting because you're going to see how he uses his calling, his gifts, his talent. And that, to me, is so encouraging to all of us because every single one of us has a gift or talent. I mean, we're not just sitting here void. We have something. But a lot of times, it might not be something that's in the limelight. That might not, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being behind the scenes and getting things done. And there's a lot of glory in that. There's a lot of wonder in that. And there's just so many different things. And sometimes we don't always tap in to what our gift and talent is because we are in outer space <laughs> thinking of all of the things that people think and all the rest of that instead of just spending some time in that inner space. Oh, I love that. You have no idea. I'm going to use that a lot. In that inner space to really, really see what it is God would have for us. Mm -hmm.
Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.